All right, welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knocks as we fight through some technical difficulties here with the Nets-Bucks game in progress as we record. It is 44-42 in the Bucks' favor as we start, but we are not going to be talking about that game so much as all the questions that have been submitted via Twitter, via direct message, and hopefully in this chat as well. Uh, and we also have Dan is queued up and ready to go with a Nikola Jokic rant. You want to just yeah. jump straight into that, Dan? Yeah, and again, we'll we'll prioritize everyone who's stuck with us because we have a ton of questions, but anyone who has questions in the room or speaker requests, we will prioritize all of you because you are troopers and we, we heart you infinitely. Okay, so before we get to these questions, Nuggets are going to lose their second round playoff series to the Phoenix Suns. I'm not dating this podcast by saying that before we see game four. It's just they're not they're not going to win the series. And there was discourse on, I listened to a few podcasts, some from people I respect and they weren't trolling. I saw the discourse on Twitter. So I don't think I'm fighting against phantoms here. Maybe I saw the wrong people on Twitter. There is this logic of thought that it is harder to build the championship team around Nikola Jokic than it would be certain other players because he's not an elite defender. Now, I'm calling bullshit. We go through this every year when a star gets eliminated earlier in the playoffs. Dame makes it harder on his team to defend. Rudy Gobert makes it harder on his team because he's not a number one option on offense. Perfect NBA superstar does not exist. There are challenges with everybody. There are challenges with Luka Doncic. Uh, he's, I think he's gotten better on defense. You could probably switch with him more, but it's going to be hard to build a defense around him. And he still needs another shot creator. It was the same thing with James Harden. It's the same thing with LeBron James. Anthony Davis basically turned into the best 3 and D wing we've ever seen during the NBA playoffs last year and the Lakers won the championship. I get that Nikola Jokic is not a good... You know, the discourse can be, how good is Nikola Jokic on defense? You want him as your backline rim protector? I think you're going to get screwed over and over again. You want to be more aggressive? He has great hands. He's like kind of quick. But even if he's not quick, the hands will help you maybe be more aggressive. Can you get some help rim protection coming from the weak side if he gets beat? There are things you can do there. It's the personnel around him. You're going to have to tailor it better I think we would run into this issue had they had Jamal Murray, had they had P.J. Dozier, and that's okay. Like, I don't think the Nuggets have screwed up. They went after Aaron Gordon, and he helps a ton on defense for them in the in the longer view. But you look at, let's look at the Phoenix Suns. Like, they have Jay Crowder. They have Mikael Bridges. They have Torrey Craig, and they have, like, a big DeAndre Ayton who's perfectly built to defend an Anthony Davis-type player or, as we've seen, against, like, a Jokic-type guy. Um, because these aren't these guys that are going to carve him up necessarily in the you know the, the pick and roll dives. Like he's better suited to go against the I don't want to say stationary bigs, but like if you're not going to get them in a ton of screening action, uh, DeAndre Ayton's better suited to defend that. And so my whole thing is, yeah, Nikola Jokic gives you challenges. There's maybe what one like prime LeBron James didn't give you challenges and. I just I don't understand this need to to think that there's not like stipulations for every superstar that we have in today's game. Like name the superstar, Adam, that there wouldn't be stipulations that you need to build a specific team around. And I, I'm not, I can't exactly. And I don't want to say the Nuggets have failed because I think you know it's important that teams like them are so good because they're in small non glamour markets. Let's call them whatever. Uh, and I want them to be good. It's good for the NBA that they're good. But we sort of go through this with Rudy Gobert. Do I think Nikola Jokic is better than Rudy Gobert? Yes, by a substantial margin. And I'm always going to favor the person who creates more on offense. That doesn't mean that Rudy Gobert was not a top 15 player in the NBA this year because you better believe that he was. 
when you look at the defensive value that he provided. He's a defense unto himself. And you know what? To build a championship team around Rudy Gobert, you need a Donovan Mitchell. You need other guys who are going to make three-pointers and can handle the ball because he can't do it because there's not a single damn player in the NBA that can do all these things at once. And it's just mind-melting to me that we have to look at a top five, top seven, top 10 guy, whatever Nicole Jokic is at this point, and think, oh, it's too hard to build a championship team around him. No. There's just a very specific way you have to go about it. Some teams have gotten luckier or maybe gone about it better than Dever, if you wanted to say. But can we also just look at the fact that, okay, we don't, none of us think that Portland was a contender. The Nuggets just beat Portland without Will Barton, without Jamal Murray. And PJ Dozier would have been important in that series, I think, for the defense he could have provided against Portland's backcourt weapons. You were missing two of your top six players, though, and you still beat them because Nikola Jokic is a monster. And like, let's look at what about if Michael Porter Jr. is not dealing with back issues right now? Are they down 3-0 about to get kicked out of the second round by the Suns? I don't know. I would have picked the Suns anyway if the Nuggets were at full strength. Full disclosure. That doesn't mean that you can't build a title team around Nicole Jokic. And I know Robert in the chat says um, Nate Duncan is the worst about this. He stubbornly refuses to change his opinion about Jokic from four years ago and finds every opportunity to clown on him, disrespect him which is a shame because I enjoy his work for the most part. Otherwise, I enjoy Nate Duncan's work too. I actually did not hear um, any of the latest Nicole Jokic stuff if there's been that. But sometimes teams are just not as good as other teams and it happens. Like that is, I, I think, I can't remember who said this. I think it was Caitlin Cooper on Twitter might have just said that sometimes there are teams that you can't adjust because they're just worse than the other teams. It was either her or Seth Partnow or both. And there were a bunch of other people that had level-headed takes that didn't go as viral as the stupid-ass takes because we have to live off this, like, inflammatory commentary now. I just, like, we have reached, and this isn't a Nicole Jokic thing. I've heard it with Luka Doncic. I get there's flaws there, but, like, you have to go about, like, look at James Harden, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving. It might be easier, in theory, to build a title team around any one of them. All three of them teamed up because that's the league today. Like, you need a ton of shot creators. And if Brooklyn loses, we're going to have questions about, Oh, do they have enough defenders around them? Like, this is just, I just, I can't. And it's even with Giannis and the Bucks. There's, I think there's a real discourse about Giannis where they're talking about, hey, you have to trade Chris Middleton or something if the Bucks lose now. And like, I kind of get it. But if you can't win, come out of the East with Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, who, again, they've, they've been iffy, both of them at different points during the playoffs. But so is Giannis. And if you can't win, get out of the East with those three guys and Drew and Chris Middleton as your you know, 2A, 2B, however you want to stash them. Maybe the problem is Giannis at that point. And I love Giannis, but like the shooting is an issue. Stop taking those shots. Be better. You have to figure out the free throw line stuff. Take fewer threes or figure out the three-point shooting stuff. I think it's important there's volume there, as I've said, because the volume itself is kind of a counter. I've compared it to Marcus Smart, where I do think defenses change the way they go at you if you're taking those shots. With Giannis, they don't because they're just not going in. And I think Giannis is a top five player in the NBA. I actually had him atop my MVP ladder at one point this season. I'm not, I'm just pointing out that like so warped where it's like, well, how come it's Nikola Jokic's fault? Nuggets, it's harder to build a championship team around him. But the response in Milwaukee to Giannis struggling is, oh, hey, we got to trade. Now Chris Middleton's got to go on the trade block. I do not get, I am just, it takes a lot for me to get triggered nowadays, but this, this triggered me. I think so much of this is the result of the pervasive rings culture where so much of an NBA legacy is determined by how many championships a player has won for better or for worse. And in this case, I think it's very much for worse because it means that every team that didn't win a title failed. And I just, I don't think that is an accurate way to look at what transpires during any given basketball season. 
You know, we said it with the Knicks, where even though they got blown out of the first round of the playoffs by the Hawks, this was a massively successful season, albeit one that has a bunch of unanswered questions for the future going, but it was a massively successful season. The Nuggets, you know, anyone who mentions their struggles in the second round without saying the words Jamal Murray, which seems to be happening pretty frequently, that's not a fair analysis of the season that this team had. The Golden State Warriors had a good season given everything that was thrown their way because Steph carried them into the play-in tournament, even if they didn't advance into one of the actual playoff rounds. You know, you can look at team after team that way, but we don't because as soon as they're eliminated from the postseason field, there's this immediate urge to run and analyze how it could have been fixed and how it could have been better. Sometimes it couldn't have been better. And that doesn't get said enough. So I wholeheartedly agree with everything you said. I don't think that there's a single player in the NBA where you can just put him there and no matter what is around him, yeah, they're going to be a contender. Every single top player is going to have a weakness that needs to be accounted for, whether it's Steph's lack of defensive game-changing ability and you need to put wing defenders around him while also still making sure that Defenses can't totally collapse towards him or LeBron James needing Anthony Davis as a running mate to win a title at this more advanced stage of his career or Jokic not being a great primary rim defender for as, as a defensive centerpiece. You know, every single player, Giannis is probably the best example where I think that he of those superstars, regardless of where he might fall in the pecking order, does have the biggest flaw that really needs to be accounted for and makes it more difficult to build a championship caliber team around him. And the Bucks are still doing their darndest to, to account for that. I do think that this is a good segue into the first mailbag question, which is actually one I submitted, uh, because it, it really does tie directly into this. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with, with the Crystal Basketball Project that we've been doing for four years now at NBA Math, we're rank- before the season starts, we rank every single player on a 1 to 12 scale based on our expectations going into the season. After the season is over, we do a retroactive analysis on that same 1 through 12 scale, see who rose, see who fell. Um, and it's basically just grouping players into tiers. So once you get up into those top ones, 9 is supposed to be an all-NBA caliber player, 10 is a lesser MVP candidate, 11 is an MVP frontrunner, and each person voting on these ballots can only submit one twelve, which is their designated best player in the league. In each of the past three years that we've done this, it felt like there were one or two options. You could go with the MVP from that season. You could go with LeBron James because he was able to hit that higher gear during the playoffs and reassert himself as probably the best player in the league. This year feels different to me where it's like you can throw a name of like seven or eight players at me and I'm totally fine with handing that 12 to them. So my question Dan was was who is your 12 this year granted yeah. there's still there's still time for that to change based on what happens in the postseason but it's Steph already that's not going to change I'm trying to think you know the other aspect of this that goes into what we're talking about too is availability and so you could talk me into Kevin Durant the way that he's played or even a Kawhi Leonard like there's a switch defensive switch still with Kawhi Leonard uh there's even an offensive switch with him I feel sometimes but anyway uh I, I think it's it's Steph for me right now. I'm not sure who left in the playoffs could change that. If you told me Joel Embiid would play in 68 games of 82 next year, I might pick Joel Embiid. Uh, They would all be in the conversation. LeBron's not out of it for me. We had a very long debate about that a few podcasts ago. So 
Uh, but right now, it's just looking at Steph. I think he's kind of the right mix of, you know, it's not like this huge defensive liability. Uh, and I think his size sort of helps there at the guard position. But when you look at how nuclear can go on offense, and he is, you know, Zach Lowe has said this about Kevin Durant, but I do think Stephen Curry is, to a certain extent, he amplifies every single star that he's ever played with. And so he's, it's not always easy to take superstars, plug them together. I can't, I, I get Kevin Durant is one of those guys for sure. But I think Steph is just, you take him and just the way he can move off the ball, what he does on the ball. I guess Kevin Durant, because of what he can do defensively on certain nights, maybe you, you elevate him over that. But right now, Stephen Curry would be my, my, my 12. I don't know who you have. It's hard to look past Jokic, just given his obvious status as the MVP, yeah, okay, which is now official. But here's the we, thing. It's really hard to build a title team around him. <laughs> Much harder than all these other stars. Yeah, I've, I've heard that a few times. Sorry, go ahead. I just had to get that in there. No, I no, I, I think it's it's valid. Um, with the way we always frame this is that it's a snapshot of this moment in time while also looking back. It's the level a player reached by the end of the season. So even if Jokic has the most impressive body of work, I still have trouble giving him my 12. I think right now, Kawhi is the front runner for mine. Just the two-way ability. And, and even if we the, – the defensive ability seems to – not quite be there like it's been in previous seasons. And it might not have even been there at the same level while he was with the Toronto Raptors for that one year. Uh, we, we've seen Donovan Mitchell go off. We've seen Luka Doncic go off against the Clippers. And these are mis- matchups that Kawhi might have done more to shut down in the past. But just the two-way ability, the increasing availability, the, the the knack for taking over a game offensively in the playoffs. I just, year after year now, I feel like I'm watching him and seeing the closest thing we've seen to Jordan in a long time on the offensive end, where just the the way that he plays, I'm not saying he's as effective as peak Michael Jordan was, but the way that he plays that smooth mid-range pull-up, the ability to get to his spots, the ability to attack the basket through traffic, the efficiency that he plays with, it's it's remarkable how easily he's been able to take over game after game for the Clippers. But if you wanted to make an argument for Jokic, for Giannis, for Harden, for Doncic, for Steph, for KD, like the options are limitless this year. Yeah, Noah said to yours, I low-key agree with Adam, the efficiency too on Kawhi. And my argument against Kawhi, aside from the um, the, the flip that he switches, which is kind of, I feel like that's a lowbrow argument anyway, would just be, I don't know what he can do as a primary playmaker aside from put him in high pick and roll. And like, that's like, you need him to do that. I don't know that. He, I feel like there are a lot more players that I'd rather have in that primary <clears throat> playmaker zone. We've kind of seen it at certain times for Los Angeles this season, but he is certainly one of the, what five to 10 candidates that I think you could put in that discussion. This mailbag question kind of coincides that we were just talking about from Brandon Ebert. If you were trying to build a perfect team for longevity purposes and championship aspirations, would Embiid or Jokic be the better player to build around? <clears throat> he noted, I, he said, health is obviously, he also added, health is obviously Jokic's favor, but I wonder if Embiid's ability to dominate and defend would make it close. And I, that's the. I, I think it does make it close. Right. But I, I feel like I would probably still lean towards Jokic because of the ability to elevate others around him and kind of serve as that system unto himself on offense. And I, I just can't help but look at the availability with Embiid because you just don't know what you're going to get. I mean, the first two seasons of his career, zero games, then 31-63, 64-51-51. Part of that is for maintenance purposes, but the other part is that he just hasn't been able to go. 
And sometimes when he's been able to go, it's not at full strength. And I think that has to matter. Do you know what the an interesting question here would be? And I, I agree with you. I think it's so close. And I do think Peak Embiid, I had him as my MVP. I, Peak Embiid might be better than Peak Jokic. And he's certainly more of an all-around player. But the availability matters. I also, you know, when you look at what Jokic does as a passer, and even like kind of, the, uh, they're both kind of like hitting these ridiculous jumpers now. So for, forget me saying that. But if you took Ben Simmons and Matisse Thybul, put them on the Nuggets instead of, let's say, Jamal Murray, and then who's their like specialty wing defender? Like instead of PJ Dozier or something, do the Nuggets get further more of a title threat than the Sixers right now? And I think the argument or the way to build around Jokic would be just get all these defense first guys and see how far he can go because he can create so much of your offense where Ben Simmons might be able to score off cuts or be better suited in the dunker spot. Ditto for Mercy Seibel. He's going to get super wide open threes. He's getting them anyway. He just doesn't uh, hit them. He's not taking a ton to begin with. So that, you know, you can even do the same thing with like, if you put Jay Crowder and Mikael Bridges, let's use the team that Denver is going up against on Denver. I could be trolling here, but hey, if you put Tory Craig on Denver, <laughs> but like, I feel like you go further. And so while the peak of Embiid might be better than Jokic, the availability matters. And I do think that if you did surround Jokic with Embiid supporting cast, but, but then the, the other question would be, if you put Jamal Murray on the, the Sixers instead of Ben Simmons, like better than Denver there's it's we need a challenge trade we need a challenge trade I I just want to respond to two of the comments that we got in the chat uh John Bond says Joel's defense puts him over Jokic for me and I get that like his his defensive advantage is massive but I think that's a little bit too simplistic just because Jokic isn't a huge defensive liability even if he's not a game-changing rim defender he's still good in the margins he still isn't a huge glaring liability. Maybe some of that defensive weakness is exposed a little bit more in the playoffs, but we still have to take it so much more into account. And Robert Norman says. His response to that, where he has a point though, is just like the things that you can do. I know in game one against Atlanta and was moving kind of weird on defense, but the things you can do with Embiid on defense, like the gap there is for sure. For sure. 100%. Um, and then Robert Norman says Jokic would benefit from perimeter defenders, but he also benefits from shooters around him as well. I, I guess I would argue that the Sixers have placed shooters around Embiid too, like Tobias Harris, Danny Green, Seth Curry. That's a pretty good trio of shooters to have. I would also say Denver probably could have could stand to put more shooters around Nicole Jokic. Like they weren't, they were very middle of the road in three point efficiency this year and so like there are people in theory that are you know good shooters on that team but they I, michael porter jr is a great shooter that that guy looks like he has all-time touch from the outside but a lot of these guys will shoot so well or their three-point opportunities will exist because of what Jokic can do with the ball and so denver was this season in let me just let me search denver um all right they were eighth in three-point efficiency so i was off i thought they were lower but I don't know that they have like these. I mean, who is the elite shooter aside from Michael Porter Jr. on that team? Jamal Murray because of his self creation, I guess. But like, Will Barton is fine. PJ Dozier is fine. Aaron Gordon is certainly not fine. Like when he's on, like he's he's the like average. Gary Harris, no. When he was there. <laughs> Robert has clarified that he meant Denver needs more shooting, and then agreed with what you were saying. So apologies for misinterpreting that, Robert. I always liked Robert. Robert's just really on point with his basketball days. <laughs> also, Denver was only 17th in three-point um, volume per 100 possessions. So that's something to consider, too. 
Noah says, but the shooters in Philly are too counteract Ben Simmons' offensive limitations. That's also a good point. Is that Jokic isn't playing beside someone with those type of limitations. So I also think with Jokic and Simmons more so than you could get away with Embiid and Simmons would be my take. I think so too. But Embiid and Simmons have still thrived together. They have. Like that's important to note too. It's almost like it's really hard to build a perfect basketball team and all of the teams capable of winning a title have significant flaws. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Like it could be hard to to build around a superstar sometimes. No, I've never I've never even given thought to that. Uh, Jokic is trash. Well, here's a fun exercise. Would you take throw health out of the equation? And I really think that's the deciding factor in this discussion. By the way, is Embiid is just you can't count on him. It has to be Jokic for me. But if you had Embiid and Jamal Murray versus Jokic and Ben Simmons, that's the starting point for your team. No, don't worry about the health stuff. Jamal Murray. I mean, Murray had Embiid. Now looking at Embiid's history plus Murray's ACL, like that's that's pretty like that's a shifty outlook, but. Who would you take? Like, what would be the better base? I think I might still rather have the Embiid-Murray side, even though in a vacuum I would have both players ranked below the Jokic-Simmons side. Because I think that there's a little bit of diminishing marginal returns in play if you have Jokic and Ben Simmons sharing the basketball in the half-court set. That's just not an ideal use of Simmons because you're either taking the ball away from Jokic and not allowing him to serve as that all-encompassing offensive hub, which is what makes the Denver offense hum, or you're forcing Simmons into an entirely off-ball situation in the half court. It would be deadly in transition with Jokic hitting those those kick-out passes and letting Simmons attack, but he struggles enough in the half court sometimes, and I think if you take him away from his one big strength in that area, yeah, he could be a really dominant cutter, but I think that you're not maximizing the talents of the dynamic duo there quite like you would be with the Embiid-Murray pairing where it just makes more sense together. I just feel like the way Philly has used Ben Simmons in the playoffs is kind of mirroring what you just said. And so if that's going to happen anyway, you'd rather have Jokic as the on-ball guy next to him. And look, the context of this is Michael Porter Jr. is still in Denver, so that makes it saucier because then you don't necessarily need Simmons' shot volume mm-hmm. or like like you would from Murray. So I would I would probably lean in beating Murray too, but that was a fun exercise. Did you want to get to the mailbag question that you were really excited about? Yeah, do you want me to read it or are you kicking it off here? I don't even see it, so that's why I threw it to you. All right, it comes from at Thunder Van, who said, if you had to design a starting five that averaged 70 points per game or less, who would yours be? And we actually interpreted this very differently. My my initial interpretation was I'm looking at what players average this season and trying to build the best starting lineup that I can with players who combined averaged 70 or fewer points per game. I think you were looking at it as let's build the best lineup we can that wouldn't score more than 70 points per game. 100%. So I just kind of cobbled this together in the few minutes before we started recording because the question came in kind of late. And I'm just going to basically not have any great shooting on this team aside from one three and D guy and Steph Curry, who helps make up for a lot of shooting woes. But I'm going with Steph Curry, Rudy Gobert, Ben Simmons, Matisse Teibel, and Devin Vassell, who together average exactly 70 points per game. 
The idea of having Simmons and Tybal defending the perimeter with Gobert behind them means that Steph can basically sit down on the defensive end and not need to do anything because Tybal is basically capable of operating all over the court. So you wouldn't really be playing four on five on defense. And then Steph can just shoot every time down the floor and average 50 points a game. And we're going to win a bunch of games. I also thought about swapping out Simmons for Robert Covington just to get another three and D body into that lineup and get a little bit more shooting. But I, I just kind of like the idea of totally committing to defense with the one good spacer and Vassell, the great role threat in Gobert, a cutting threat and secondary creator in Simmons and Steph just shooting flames. Yeah. My issue there is that Steph probably averages 70 a game by himself on that team. By my interpretation of the question though, that is fair game. So my team would be um, Giannis, Ben Simmons, Rudy Gobert, Bam Adebayo, and OG Ananobi. Super light on floor spacing in that. I'm going super big. I know that they could probably do stuff in transition. Who is the on-ball? Like, if you're looking at Giannis and Ben Simmons having to create together in the half court, going to get super iffy. So that team is probably allowing 40 points a game. Are they scoring 80? I mean, it's the modern day NBA. I think they're. I think they're scoring over eighty a game. There's one guy who will shoot threes, or make threes because Giannis will shoot them. That's OG Ananobi. Right, that but you're just going to overpower everyone. Also, Giannis will shoot threes. I Should he? he? Will. I didn't say he wouldn't make them. Okay, fair, fair. There'll Important clarification. There will be one guy on that team making threes. So that's how I interpreted it. I didn't go as exact. I thought about even like. I didn't want to, because there are good passers on that team when you look at Bam and Ben and Giannis. I tried to, like, lower those, but then I was like, you know, if I put Mikael Bridges on that team, like, he's got some kind of creation. So you're looking at, like, those specialty wings. Uh, maybe if you went with, like, a put Tybal instead of Ben Simmons on that team or instead of Giannis, like, that would be the safer way mm-hmm. to ensure that you average 70 points a game. But that's my team. John says headhunting a weak defender, and I, I am pretty sure this is in response to my team. Headhunting a weak defender in the NBA is on a completely different level now, and we saw that in the 2018 Rocket series when they hunted Curry. Yeah, absolutely. 100% true. It's way easier now just given the proliferation of three-point shooting and the ability to get switches basically whenever you want them to target that one poor defender. But this team is specifically designed for that not to be a concern because Simmons and Tybal are just so ridiculously rangy. I mean, we've heard Doc Rivers say multiple times that Tybal in particular, he just breaks all of the defensive rules because he can. He doesn't have to worry about following them because he can just show up as if he's just teleported to a different area of the court. So I do think that despite that 100% being true, that that specific team construction, given these parameters, would still be able to account for that enough. Fair enough. Let's move on to, this is interesting. Talk about deep cut. Shout out Kate Hornack for asking, what contracts do you expect Campaign and Tory Craig to sign this offseason? Backup Campaign has like not had a great playoff game yet, but, but he's been so like good and solid. I think you're both of the – and look, Torrey Craig just wings that crashes the offensive glass, shooting well from three in Phoenix overall, really good defensively for them. I would think that both of these guys end up getting a mini MLE money at least, which would be $5.7 million about to start. If I had to guess which one doesn't, might be campaign 
just because the the point guard market's not super deep, but the back the backup point guard market is always sort of weird. And there is a shortage of wings. And if you're going to look at the way that Torrey Craig has played in Phoenix this year and been like, okay, well, this is what happens when he's kind of surrounded by, uh, you know, he's getting, I don't want to say extra playing time because he did play in, in Denver, but if he's going to shoot 40% from three in the playoffs, and I think he shot over 40% in the regular season with them. No, it's 36.9%. Still good enough and give you just a ton of defensive minutes across a bunch of positions. That's just more of a, you know, not playing on the ball as much. That is more of a in demand than I would argue than necessarily a backup point guard. I don't know how you feel, but I would assume that both of those guys end up getting at least in the the mini MLE market, which for, you know, Torrey Craig was given away for free essentially at the trade uh, around the trade deadline by the Bucks and then campaign was out of the NBA for a while. So that's a that's great for those guys. I think the only spot I disagree is that I feel like Payne will get a little bit more than that. The backup point guard market is always weird, but there's always such a priority on that position. Every team wants to have two capable point guards or more on its roster. And given how he's played throughout this postseason, just as a reliable shooter, a reliable secondary creator, just a very effective backup point guard and his age, he'll be 27 in August. He is not going to be declining on this next contract. I wouldn't be surprised if he signs an extension or a new contract in the same ballpark as what Monte Morris signed, which was 327. Yeah, so like basically full non-taxpayers MLE money. Yeah. Close to it anyway. I'm just trying to think of the team that might give it to him. If you think he can play in tandem guard lineups with like another creator, as I'm like choking over here. That might be an interesting way to look at it. Also, you could try and go short term if you're one of the teams with cap space and looking for a scoring point. Hey, look, if you're the Knicks, would you pay campaign like you know a one plus one for twelve million dollars or something so that you don't have Alfred Payton on your team? Why the hell? Sure, not? sure. <laughs> Miami would be a fun spot too. They have Dragic though. I guess if you don't think he's going to be healthy, and they're they're, yeah. they're probably. I, I, I have seen nothing recently to convince me that that Dragic is not on the decline. Kim asks, can Phoenix be stopped by anyone in the West, and how? I would argue that by scoring more points than Phoenix, <laughs> you'd probably be able to stop them. I think the answer is Utah. And granted, Utah still has to make it past the Clippers, just as the Suns still have to close out the Nuggets. But that's the team that has the two-way ability to keep pace on offense and to make a defensive dent against against the Suns as, you, sorry, as you laugh about something. Noah in the chat was because I think it was to my campaign comment. He just commented yes in the chat after Alfred Payton thing. I'm sorry. Please continue. That was rude. I mean, that's about what I got. Like, I, I don't – I think the matchups themselves are still difficult because Utah's defensive strength isn't necessarily on the perimeter, which is what makes Phoenix so good because of that dual guard ability with Chris Paul and Devin Booker. But – the rim protection that Gobert affords you, which in turn allows you to focus more resources on stopping the perimeter players, that coupled with the offensive explosiveness of this Utah Jazz team that is willing to just chuck up three after three and has so many good shooters and so much depth on the offensive end, that's that's the matchup. I think even both the teams that they could face might end up being their toughest matchup because how does, you know, how does Aiton respond when the Clippers are going small? Because I think he'll probably mm-hmm. be fine against Zubats, 
and we know Ibaka's not going to play, and if they decide to bust out DeMarcus Cousins, he'll be ultra fine. That's just God, the freaking Clippers rotation this series against the Jazz. Just bizarre. Anyway, uh, I think because then you could play Charge more, like get away with that, the Clippers might actually be the better matchup for them, if that makes any sense. I think the Suns have. would rather play the Clippers, especially because and, you're not playing Gobert off the floor, and there's this misconception that he's a bad defender in space. And we've seen just how easily Chris Paul and Devin Booker can cook bigs in space. Gobert's actually good when he's targeted in isolation. There's not a way to neutralize him defensively. I think there is because of their shot selection. Those two will just put up the mid-rangers before he gets out there to contest them. And we've seen Chris Paul cook him. But when Chris Paul has that look in his eyes, it can happen. Right, and if if they're going to take those mid-rangers and make them, they're going to beat anyone. That's still what you want to be forcing them to do. I think actually what makes the Jazz scarier, and I, I agree with your overarching point, but assuming that Mike Conley plays, I, I'm basically thinking that his injury is not too serious right now, and Utah's just trying to see how many games they can steal without him. But if Mike Conley plays, you're going to have Rudy Gobert in a ton more screen and roll action. And I think that's where DeAndre Ayton, I don't want to say can be exposed, he's going to struggle more. Mm-hmm. against that type of approach than the the bigs that he's faced so far. And if you're going to, you could send help. That's great. Spritzing out those passes to, to shooters and charge isn't going to help you in that matchup either. If you decide to go smaller there. So I think my, the Suns are still my pick to come out of the West. I haven't seen anything that changed that Utah would seem to be the less favorable matchup for them. Noah had a fantastic question about this though, since we're on this series, is anyone else not at Noah Odage, by the way? Is anyone else actually Noah? Tell me if I'm pronouncing your last name right. By the way, I've just been pronouncing it for months now. Is it like Odage? Is it whatever? But anyway, carry on. I'll carry on. Is anyone else not at all phased by the Clippers winning Game Three against the Jazz? It feels as if Utah will have a very good hold on this series, and if Mitchell and Conley are healthy, the Jazz don't let it get to seven. Suns Jazz will be one of the best Western Conference Finals of all time. I would be. We didn't mention this when we were talking about that. I would, I want to see. Suns Jazz, I think, in the worst way. I think I like the way the Clippers match up better than any team if we're going to get a series against the fully healthy Nets. But as we're recording this, Kyrie Irving injured his ankle and is out for the rest of Game Four with Brooklyn. And we know James Harden up uh, with against Milwaukee. We know James Harden still dealing with the hamstring stuff. I want to see Suns Jazz is like the the basketball matchup that I want to see. But how do you feel about that overall question? Like, are you do you look at Game Three as this turning point for the Clippers? Nope. Are they? What's that Adam Sandler mean? This is how I win from uh, uncut gems. Every time the Clippers go down two to zero this postseason, apparently they're going to come raging back. Maybe. I don't see it. You know, the, again, the as you said, the Jazz have taken a two-one lead without Mike Conley. Mike Conley was an all-star this season. He's he makes this offense hum. He, Mike Conley was an all-star. I just want to throw the... He did, yeah, I mean, he was more of an honorary all-star, but like, let's not pretend he wasn't playing at that kind of level. Oh, no, and I had a tweet that said when they... Like, the Western the Conference was yeah. really deep, which is why you kind of need that asterisk there a little bit, where it might have been somewhat of a legacy award. He was absolutely good enough to merit an all-star inclusion this year. You know, just no, if I'm, we did what we should have a long time ago and expanded the all-star rosters, because that's a soapbox I just seem to live on. But yeah, I mean, the, the Jazz have a two-one lead without without Conley, with Mitchell fighting through these injuries to his lower extremities and probably taking it a little bit easy, but still showing ridiculous shot making craft. Some of the buckets that he made in the first half of Game Three 
were just flat out ridiculous. I, I just, I don't see this series changing in the Clippers' favor. I'm, I'm with you. And like, Boyan Bogdanovich not shooting two of 10 again and one of five from three, just not going to happen. I do think Mike Conley's huge if you want to, you know, put, make sure that Rudy Gobert is going to stay more in, uh, like the pick and roll situations as and as Noah Odige, it's pronounced like prestige. So Noah Odige, um, plus Donovan Mitchell was out for most of the fourth quarter in Game Three. Even though LA was up, the Jazz kept fighting back. There's a team that's not going to go away. I like them exponentially better than the Clippers. Who I look, Reggie Jackson having a fantastic season. Nick Batum fantastic season. If you're depending on them to be like two of your top five guys on a game to game basis in the year 2021. I'm wildly uncomfortable with your situation. I don't like Rudy. I wasn't Reggie Jackson found out in game one or game two of this series. And I, in my head, I'm like, Oh, the Clippers are screwed. That's not, that's not okay. Like it's not an okay way to think. It wouldn't surprise me if the Clippers won. I want to make that clear because on paper, they're a really good team. And if Paul George is going to have, you know, the night he did, but I, yeah, I'm not too concerned after game three of seeing anything that's going to choose. Now, if you tell me Mike Conley's not playing again this series and I haven't, that's when it really, changes. Yeah. That's that's when it changes. But they got out to a 2-0 lead. And I point this out. That's a gigantic-ass deal to do that without Mike Conley because I do think he's important to keeping. I've mentioned this a ton. Rudy Gobert involved on offense. But I'm just looking at game three. And, like, you know, Jordan Clarkson is going to have those high-variance moments, but you're going to get better nights from Bogdanovich. You're going to get better nights from Donovan Mitchell. Uh, you're, and you're even, like, I just – I don't know how the Clippers defend a lot of the stuff that the Jazz are doing because even if you're just, like – Throwing Kawhi on Donovan Mitchell, which is the answer. That's what the answer was in the Dallas series, too. Throw him on Luka Doncic to make life harder. The Jazz are just so good shooting overall. I mean, even look, they shot 43.2% in a loss in game three. Um, or no, yeah. And like, how do you defend? Okay, if let's Kawhi's on Donovan Mitchell, I don't know how the Clippers are built to defend like the Joe Angle side pick and roll at this point, even if Mike Conley's not on the floor. There's just the Jazz are their their talent level falls off after their top eight guys. Their top eight guys are really fucking good. The Jazz's swing passes and just ability to work the ball around the key, turning down good shots for great ones, and making sure that every single minuscule rotational mishap is capitalized upon is just eerily reminiscent of like 2013 San Antonio Spurs, the 2017 Golden State Warriors, those teams that truly excelled and made offense look really easy. I just that's what I keep coming back to is that this is not a team that's dependent on Donovan Mitchell hero ball or the pick and roll game or knocking down a ton of threes. It is an offensive machine that is fine tuned at this point when all the pieces are available and is remarkably good at getting the best shot out of every single possession. Let's get to this question from I don't know why I scrolled away from it. That seemed kind of rude on my part. Um, Lior Brownstein asks, who was the most efficient rookie this year? I don't, there's like not a perfect way to measure this. So I just looked at the rookies that qualified for the minutes per game leaderboard and then sorted them by true shooting and effective field goal percentage. Xavier Tillman led hmm. both categories, followed by in second place in both categories was Desmond Bain and Isaiah Stewart was three. And then I think if you're looking at a rookie that actually had the ball in his hands, and was tasked with some creation. Tyrese Halliburton was the most efficient rookie. 58-5 true shooting was fourth, and his effective field goal percentage was also fourth, 56-9. That would be my answer. And I think his you know, role is a big part of this. 
Peyton Pritchard, top five there. But none of these guys shouldered the same offensive responsibility as Lomelo Ball, who ranked outside of the top 10. So there's a different way to sort of measure the the efficiency. I don't know if there's anyone you're super impressed by when you're looking at their efficiency numbers as a rookie or maybe even concerned by, but that's just my take on it. Yeah, I mean, look, the rookies at the top were hyper-efficient, but their roles were a lot different. But that's also why Tyrese Halliburton was so impressive to me because he had real ball handling responsibility, not as much as LaMelo Ball. At the same time, for a rookie, it was, you know, it was impressive. And that's why I think he would be my pick. He might not be number one in any of the the catch-all numbers, in true shooting percentage, anything like that. But ultimately, we're looking at a guard who was heavily involved in the offensive sets and still shot 52.9% on twos, 40.9% on threes, 85.7% on free throws. He averaged 5.3 assists and only 1.6 turnovers per game. Those are the two typical pitfalls for rookie guards as they're breaking their way into the NBA. They shoot poorly, especially around the basket especially from three-point range, and they often have turnover issues because they're trying to force the issue a bit too much. They're not quite up to speed with the ridiculous pace of NBA games, and he came in and looked like a veteran in both areas. So if you combine together context with the pure numbers, I feel like that has to be the answer. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I don't even know what the alternative answer would be. You could one of the with, one of the shooters, like you could say Vassell or Isaiah Stewart, because he never took shots that he wasn't capable of taking. But again, context has to matter there. Um, this one comes from Jeezy Hoop Diary. Love the Twitter name. Would you be able to find a stat on the top three ISO scores per game so far in the playoffs? Turns out I would be. I sorted this a minimum of ten possessions in the playoffs because we're dealing with like very small sample sizes. Uh, Damian Lillard finished first. Shocker. Can you guess what he's averaging per isolation possession? The, how many points per isolation possession he's averaging? He was okay. unstoppable. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with something like 1.42. 1.65. Whoa. 1.65. And do you know what? So for is? context, that's a big number. Right. And so for, for context, second place is Devin Booker at 1.33. And here's the crazy thing, but small sample sizes. I want to reiterate that. Damian Lillard, still seventh in shots attempted out of isolation possessions. So he's played in six games, and the only players that have attempted more shots in isolation are Kawhi, Giannis, Kevin Durant, James Harden, Jason Tatum is on there, which is also incredible, and then Luka Doncic. So this isn't like a matter of volume thing. 1.65. The dude is just absurd. Third place is James Harden at 1.31. Kevin Durant is fourth at 1.29. And fifth was Tatum at 1.23. I would. What's Chris Paul at? Because he would have been my guess for number two. He's sixth at 1.20. I will say my guess would have been Damian Lillard. I never would have. 1.65 is an unfathomable number. I know it's six games. I don't care. I thought my guess might have been laughably high, and it was too low. So yeah, one point six five. I the 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 dude is just I on another level, and he will be in Portland next season for anyone who who cares. Um, I, I know there's a lot. If you had uh, made me guess who the top three were going to be, I probably would have said Lillard at one, Paul at two, and Katie at three. 
I'm actually surprised Katie's under 1.3 points per ISO. Yeah. Like, I don't, was that just like in game three against the Bucs? He wasn't as hot as he normally was. Potentially. Yeah. It also feels like Dylan Brooks could be really high up that list. Oh, man. That's a player we fundamentally disagree about. If you would like me to see where Dylan Brooks ends. Well, it was a total fluke. <laughs> that was that was not a sustainable performance, but he was really good in isolation throughout the brief postseason adventure. He is ninth behind Carmelo Anthony, who's eight, one point okay. eight for Melo, okay. one point one three for Dylan Brooks. So I'll take that. Second coming of it's if you put basically, you know, Keldon Johnson and Carmelo Anthony together, Dylan Brooks is the player that you get apparently. So there it is. This next question, I'm going to change it up a little bit, although I will have an answer to the actual question. Fern asks, and I know you don't necessarily like this trade stuff, can you give us your best Malcolm Brogdon and Buddy Heald hypothetical trades? I assume not for each other, but the question I want to throw to you, do you think either of these players should actually be traded for their teams to get better? Healed. Yeah, I would well, definitely not move Brogdon. Uh, I, just, was that I think he's too valuable. I, I don't think so. I mean, the, the the Pacers have had a lot of tumult with the the coaching change and just the the continued Demontis Sabonis and Miles Turner situation, whatever you're going to make of that, with TJ Warren's injury and some of the weird reports that came out about that and his relationship with the now former coach. Uh, I feel like anything could happen in, in Indiana, but why would you get rid of that jack-of-all-trades guard like Brogdon, who is capable of of playing like a top 25 player for short stretches of the season. I don't even need to fuck with the audio there because you gave me that sound bite. Look, and also, can you guess how many minutes did Brogdon, Warren, Turner, Sabonis, and Karis LeVert play together this season? Zero. It's less than that. Zero. Wow, wow that's <laughs> impressive. So I would want to see more. That being said, if you were to trade Brogdon, I'd be curious if – so Indiana, being in a smaller market, McConnell's a free agent. McDermott's a free agent. They got to start thinking about TJ Warren's next contract. Would you do Andrew Wiggins, the Minnesota pick, and maybe another first round pick for Brogdon and Miles Turner? Say that one more time. But two firsts, one of which is the Minnesota pick, plus Andrew Wiggins for Miles Turner and Malcolm Brogdon. Hmm. You could put James. Probably Wiseman not. In. Probably not. Would you do it if it was the mini pick and James Wiseman plus Wiggins? Also, probably not. I think having Wig- the Wiggins money on the books is too detrimental for a team that is still trying to figure out its core identity. Indiana doesn't know what it is yet. It has a bunch of pieces that are great pieces, but are kind of haphazardly assembled. And I don't think that you want to limit yourself quite like you need to when that Wiggins contract is on the books. And ultimately, as good as that mini pick looks aren't you kind of hoping that you get someone as effective as Brogdon with it? I mean, those picks carry with them far higher upside, especially in this class, if it does convey this year, because the top six or seven players all have superstar potential. Brogdon doesn't have superstar potential, but the bus chance is real too. And he is a legitimate top end talent. And you need a player like that on a contending team. So no, I don't think I would. I think that there are, are too many limitations given the inherent risk of building around picks. The I agree with you because you're only saving if you're if you're looking at it as exchanging Turner and Brogdon salary for Andrew Wiggins. I think you're saving like eight to twelve million annually when you look at how those deals flesh out. 
if you were able to build the deal without Andrew Wiggins going to Indiana, that might be where it gets interesting just because the reality of Indiana situation where I don't think that they're going to pay the tax. I think they keep this team together at least until next year. Maybe one of McConnell or McDermott leaves just because they're so close to the yeah. tax. Uh, and by the way, Doug McDermott, I think is going to get the bag in free agency. That is my surprised. Yeah. So maybe that's not a spicy prediction. Healed though. I think you just have to move him. I'm shocked. He's still in Sacramento because he's very much a luxury item for a team that shouldn't be focused on luxury items right now. Great shooter, like it there. limited role. He hasn't been happy. You need to establish culture just as you need to establish a winning basketball team. Those kind of go together hand in hand. And Heald would be far more effective on a team that can use him in the proper role, not try to overextend him, and just allow him to accept what he is and accept him for what he is at the same time. Noah says, I'm shocked a lot of people are still in Sacramento, personnel included. Yes. Uh, yeah. Color me amazed that Luke Walton has managed to keep his job there. Where would you – so with Heald, his contract is a little, from a team perspective, is inflated. He's guaranteed $62.5 million over the next three years. That could make it tough to trade. I'm curious if there are any destinations that you would be interested in seeing him going. Anywhere that's not Sacramento. No, I, I don't have I don't have a good top of mind answer to that one. I just I have not been focused on offseason stuff with the playoffs in full swing. I'd be curious if like Memphis would be a good fit if they can cobble together requ- requisite salary because in lieu of getting another star, what if you just got a, a dude that could shoot a ton of threes and give you like a little like off the dribble juice when he's taking his jumpers? Sure, I, I think that he works. He's one of those players who really does work on almost any contending team, because what contending team doesn't need more shooting on the wings? Ooh, Noah said, would you do this? Let's say Buddy Heald into the Knicks cap space, or do you think that Heald is more, he's more valuable than that, right? Then what? In the cap space? Yeah. No? I I would do that for for New York. No, I'm talking about Sacramento. Would you do that? That Mm. would allow you to re-sign Rashawn Holmes. Probably not. I think that you still need something coming back because you are taking a step back without Buddy Heald. Kevin Knox trying to rehabilitate (laughs) a wing. I I don't. I'm honestly maybe Alfred Payton. Not on the books. Well, as we that we know of as of now. I'm just curious. Like, what would if you're a team though? So forget about destinations. Like, what would you give up for Buddy Heald though? Because that's not he's not a perfect player. He's making a crap ton of money for the next three years. The right team could justify giving a, a late first round pick, I think. Oh, yeah, I'm not giving up a first round pick for that deal. I'm not going to lie. Shooting is just so vital in the NBA today. And you look at any combination of volume and efficiency numbers over the last two years, the last three years, the last five years, whatever the case may be, and Heald is going to be near the top of those leaderboards. He is one of the NBA's elite shooters. He just has not been on a team that is maximizing that ability and has not been able to try to maximize that ability and is still putting up those numbers. I think if you're building a short list of the the best shooters in the league, he's on it. So I, I, I do think that you can justify giving up that valuable a pick again for the right team. Yeah, I guess I'm just, that's all he does. Like, like Portland, not- Portland should not do that because that right. that's not the kind of piece that's pushing you over the top. Uh, the Jazz, similar. You don't need to do that because you have the wings shooting. Denver, that makes sense. You know, someone 
one of those kind of teams where you want to push higher up the three point leaderboards and you are ready to swing for the fences. I feel like that's this kind of situation where you can float that type, that type of draft capital. Milwaukee. You know where, you, you know where it makes sense? The Lakers. It does. It absolutely does. If they traded their first round pick and then you were willing to do like a, a double sign and trade. I don't know why Sacramento would want Schroeder or why I'd want to go there. But like, what if like Caruso is involved? Or maybe if you can get in a first Kuzma. round pick and uh, I'm not giving up the first round pick then if it's Kuzma for Buddy Heald. Maybe because it's number 20. It's, it's, it's number 22. Are we still on the Kyle Kuzma can be a good player train though? I think he's a solid defender now. I don't think. Yes, he's he is. He is developed into a solid defender. I don't think he's ever going to be. But I, the issue you run into there is you have to give up Kuzma and another contract. Plus that first round pick. That seems like kind of a steep price to pay if you're Los Angeles for yeah. Buddy Heald. But that would be Los Angeles would be a a fun team. That was the last of the mailbag ones that I had marked. The other the other issue with LA there though is that I think there's a secret contractual provision in the CBA that prevents teams from putting enough shooting around LeBron. So you might have to get Not, silver involved for that one. Unless you're in the Disney bubble, because then true, the, true. All, his entire supporting cast will shoot the lights out um let's try and squeeze in a couple more questions here uh oh we did that one what's james harden's value after this season if he remains the same size will his field goal percentage made decrease or will he remain consistent comes from iceberg maine i'm very confused by that question um like if he gets shorter (laughs) if his beard stops growing i don't know um I, I, I've been on the, the, the bandwagon that Harden is still underrated over these last few years. Just that he is a historically efficient volume scorer who you could reasonably call one of the greatest scorers in NBA history. And the way that they've built teams around him hasn't always been ideal. And there have been injury issues both for him and for teammates, but I just I don't see any reason to believe he's going to stop being that at any point. And it was telling to me that when he moved to Brooklyn, he was the one who changed his role. That instead of being that primary, secondary, and tertiary scorer who could also function as a great passer, he accepted more of a past first a pass first role from the get-go, allowing Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to continue playing the styles that they were most comfortable playing. And to me, that's just a sign of the overwhelming amount of offensive talent that he has and an indication that even if he starts to lose that quick first step, if he's not quite as physical, if his body starts to betray him, that there's more to his game than we've seen. And I just don't expect him to be anything but a continuing MVP candidate for the foreseeable future. Yeah, the only reason I think he would fall out of that discussion discourse is because he plays with two other top ten players. So, right. Uh, Chris asks Trey, "What are Trey Young's stats when guarded by Ben Simmons this series?" I'll preface this by that data is always imperfect, but Trey Young has shot five of eleven against Ben Simmons. That's forty five point five percent from the floor. Zero of three on three pointers, and he has committed. One turnover versus Ben Simmons. Now, what's interesting, though, what I also like to look at is the number of team points that have been scored on the possessions with Ben Simmons defending Trey Young. This is, again, imperfect. But on the partial possessions that Ben Simmons has spent guarding Trey Young, 
Atlanta is averaging 1.3 points per possession as a team, which is incredibly high. I don't know how much of that is inflated by game one. But even if even if it isn't, I think that's still the beneficial move for Philadelphia because you're still forcing Atlanta's secondary players to be the ones that beat you. That's 100%. You just do it regardless. It's The fact like that Trey Young only has 11 shots while Ben Simmons is guarding him this series, that's a victory in and of itself because Simmons is forcing the ball out of his hands and preventing him from getting touches better than any other defender has to this point. Even if the numbers don't bear out that it's a successful strategy, it's the right strategy. Right. I mean, you look at did um, 10 shots against Danny Green in about half as many partial possessions that Danny mm-hmm. Green spent on him. It's like the, the discrepancy there is huge. He's attempted four shots against Matisse Thibel in, again, roughly half of the possessions that Ben Simmons has faced him. So yeah, I'm, I'm in 100% lockstep with you. This other question, Kiwi. Great will fruit. The Tim- will the Phenomenal ever- fruit. Will the Timberwolves ever make the playoffs again with Carl Anthony Towns? Now, I think a way to frame this question would be, and I'm not trying to say Carl Anthony Towns is going to request a trade, but just based off how things are going with player contracts now, where a year out from free agency at least, it becomes an issue. You're saying, I think you're – this is akin to asking, will the Timberwolves make the playoffs in one of the next three seasons? And I think that's a fair way to put it. I'm not trying to be an asshole about it. I'm, I'm going to say yes. I think there there isn't a player in the core who's going to age out of productiveness. Maybe Ricky Rubio is the one you're looking at there, given his relatively advanced age compared to everyone else. But this is a young, improving core. And Carl Anthony Towns was not available and was dealing with a lot because of the pandemic throughout this past season and the one before Anthony Edwards improved astronomically during the second half of the season. Malik Beasley played well when he was available, but was not always available. D'Angelo Russell was not always available. We haven't seen what this roster can do when all the pieces are together for a prolonged period of time. And there are still going to be more positive players coming in. Jaden McDaniels looked like a keeper. We still haven't seen most of what Jarrett Culver can do, and it's too soon to call him an absolute abject bust. Josh mm. Kogi can do more. I think Culver is trending in that direction, but I definitely don't think that you can condemn a player this soon into his career when he's on an organization that has historically struggled with player development and has not had all the key pieces available. So I look at this this roster, this depth chart, and I see enough to be intrigued by, and there's quite a bit of top-end talent there. So I, I don't, at the very least... I won't go as far as, as saying that with 100% certainty, the Timberwolves will make the playoffs in the next three years. But I think it's foolish to rule that out. That wasn't the question. Nice hedge there. Yes or no? That's the question. I said yes right off the bat. I would put it, I'll give it like a, a, a 70% chance. I'm the Anthony Edwards closing kick to the season. And that will be, we have a final question that I'm going to get to about Anthony Edwards, which is officially your, your slant, I think, is, is Anthony Edwards at this point. His close of the season makes it super interesting because that might give them that legitimate second best player on a really good team that they just haven't had. Also, I, we need to see what happens in the draft lottery this year because if they keep their pick, there are a lot of different avenues that are open to them. Uh, I mean, even if they lose it, they could technically then trade 2022 pick after the draft is over and maybe that gets you something. But anyway, I the West is just so brutal and you have to look at which teams are falling out of there. 
I think the Lakers will stay there. The Clippers probably stay there. The Suns probably stay there. The Nuggets probably stay there. There are a lot of other teams at the Jazz that's five. I just, it's so tough. I would, I'm going to call it a 50 50 proposition. And that, that's hedging. If I had to pick, I'd say no. I don't know that I trust the rebuilding model there. And I think they, there's something just off. And how much time do they have to give towards development if they keep their pick this year? And if he is so important to what they're doing, whoever they select. Uh, this question, though, and I'm laughing at, of Tyson Men asked, is Cristiano Felicio just a giant baby? And shout out Hannah Morning responded, laughing my ass off to that. Shout out to Hannah Morning, who DM'd me very politely about a mistake that was in one of my most recent articles where I lost track of when Zach Collins played last. I forgot he played in the, the Disney bubble. But shout out to Hannah for being very respectful and alerting me to it. But this question, final question, is from Devaste asks, how would you interpret Edwards' TPA this season? And as a recap for it, negative 127. Point three five that ranked 532nd in the league. He was a negative 83.27 on defense, negative 40.4408 on offense. But the end of this question is, do you consider it rigged based on the team he played in or are there some other reasons behind linked to his game? Now, I just want to say, I don't think it's rigged in any way, shape or form. Wouldn't be the word for it. We've talked about this a few times and if you look at the way that Anthony Edwards collected all of the negative TPA, it was primarily in the first half of the season. From the All-Star break on, he actually increased his TPA score, which means that for roughly half of the season, he was a net positive despite playing on a team that was not a net positive. TPA penalizes players who shoot a lot if they're not shooting at the league average in terms of efficiency, which he did not because he was overextended because Minnesota was missing so many key pieces and forcing him into a role that he was not ready for. We've also seen so many rookies struggle with their shots. So that's all working against him. He's not a defense. He was not a defensive positive for most of the year. I don't think he ever got to true positive territory, but he still showed progress on that end. And he was playing for a non-competitive team that struggled, which meant that the team modifiers within the calculations for box plus minus are also going to bring him down. So it was a perfect storm for him where everything that could go negatively in that specific calculation did go negatively. And then he still managed to be a positive for the final 36 or so games of the season. Unless we forget After the All-Star break, he averaged 23.8 points, 5.3 rebounds, 3.4 assists, 1.4 steals, only 2.6 turnovers per game, despite that heavy, heavy workload, while slashing 45-4, 34-9, 76-2. Are those phenomenal superstar caliber numbers? No, but they were a distinct, obvious improvement from the first half of his season, while still shouldering that ridiculously heavy burden that he had no business shouldering. If you watched Anthony Edwards for 10 minutes at the beginning of the season and then 10 minutes at the end of the season, the only reason you would know that they're the same player is the number, the name, and the look of the player. The way they operated with the basketball, the way they operated without the basketball, the way they played defense were polar opposites because he showed so much in-season improvement. And we have plenty of examples of guys who have thrived at the tail end of a season that obviously isn't leading the playoffs because they're given more opportunities, they're given more bandwidth. But this doesn't feel like that because his opportunity level didn't change. If anything, it went down a little bit because the Timberwolves were getting healthier and he proved that he deserved to carve out such a large role. 
So I don't look at that negative TPA score as anything other than an indicator that he was in an outsized role and was a rookie with a high volume shooting job. You didn't answer whether Cristiano Felicio is just a giant baby, though. Sure. It does look like one. I thought that was a great, but I agree with everything you said. And I know this is not scientific, but for like rookie and sophomore seasons, I am more inclined to just throw efficiency out the window and just like any sort of numbers, unless they're, you know, it's clear, like a Tyrese Halliburton situation where every single metric loves him. I'm more inclined to read a lot into that than I am every single metric hating a certain rookie or sophomore. I wonder how many Anthony Edwards monologues I've done at this point. Uh, if you're wondering how many questions we had about Cristiano Felicio in the mentions of the mailbag, it was three, which is wildly wow. impressive. I want to ask, you got to ask a question on this, so I want to ask you a question. I'm probably 50. The Bucks are going to beat the Nets in game three, uh, game four. And what is, what do you give the Bucks a chance to win this series? And what is the discourse around Brooklyn if they lose the series? Is it just that, oh, wait until they're healthy? It has to be, right? I mean, I, I, they they lost Kyrie Irving during this game. We don't know how long he's going to be out for at the time of this recording. As we're talking, it's 81-69 Milwaukee at the end of the third quarter. James Harden hasn't played yet. Jeff Green hasn't played yet. You're giving major minutes to Mike James, who was signed off the street midway through the season. You're giving major minutes to, to Landry Shamet. Jeff Green has played, I should say, because we haven't been watching this game while we're recording, but he has uh, played 19 minutes your, to this point. Speak for yourself. Kevin Durant just hit a ridiculous baseline jumper that's going to make this question look super foolish, I think. But it might. Yeah. But no, I, I, I would not be surprised if Milwaukee does win this series. We both, I think we both picked them, right? Yeah, Bucks and seven. That, that take looks yeah. extremely rough. Even after they won game three, I wasn't feeling it, but I will stand by it because I need to, I'll go down with my sinking ship. <laughs> I just I don't think it says anything about the Nets. I the, someone will try and make it say something about the Nets. Who's the of player course. who gets thrust? Should they trade him? It'll be was the James Harden trade a mistake? And the answer is no, because given the amount of superstar injuries they've had, th- he became a necessity for the regular season. He became a necessity. Uh, I think it'll be Kyrie Irving. It'll be like oh, should the Nets yeah. trade Kyrie Irving? It's you have to give you have to see what happens or if they can stay healthy and they're also they're out of moves unless they trade one of those guys. Like, yeah, but Kyrie exactly. Kyrie's the right answer. It's not to say that he deserves blame if they lose the series, but if you're looking to take the next step as a team, it's probably the answer because James Harden can do everything that Kyrie Irving does plus more. You're not going to ever replace the shot making excellence of Kevin Durant, who can get looks off in any situation whatsoever and also play high quality defense in a number of different scenarios. It's got to be Kyrie Irving because he's the most limited player among that trio. That's like super soaker pointed to the head with spoiled mayonnaise in it, and you have to make a decision of who to right. trade. I don't think right. we should trade Again, him. and I'm not saying that we should blame Kyrie whatsoever. Just that if if they are looking to, quote-unquote, blow up this team, yeah, that's got to be the answer. They're, and they're out of moves. Like They've changed. Like The head coach has been changed. They've given up everything for the trade assets. Nicholas Claxton's still interesting. And I would keep him, but you could dangle him. And if you want to try and sign and trade Spencer Dinwiddie, but then you're hard capped, which, you know, I think their tax bill is slated to be through the roof next season. So that's not even really an option for them, I don't think. But I, I don't know what you would do in the scenario of how do you improve this team? I think you count on what we saw with LeBron as soon as he joined the Lakers, where you're in a massive market, both in terms of size and media attention with three established stars. And you might be able to get veterans who are chasing a ring on the cheap. 
there it's it's very possible given the construction of this team that you could realistically sign a key player in his 30s to a minimum contract because he wants to play for this team. I was kind of thinking like is this could be this be the next DeMarcus Cousins to the Warriors situation which obviously didn't pan out but it was remember when that news broke? Yeah. And he's just and it was just like what we were all like, oh, the NBA is broken now. Yeah. So I wonder if that's – I don't know who that guy would be, but like Otto Porter's not on that level even though he needs to reboot his value. So I don't think it's they, – they need to be healthy, but I do the, – the Bucks are going to win. saying this with 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter. The Bucks are going to win. I That makes the series so much more interesting. And if the Nets lose, I really don't think it's an indictment on anything other than the health of, the, of their three key players this, this season. Yeah. That does it for us though. Thank you all for listening to this mailbag and thanks to everyone in the lock, the locker room room who stuck with us through two created rooms with our um, technical issues. I apologize if I sound like ass or if Adam sounds like ass, we had to record it this way. Hope it'll be up and running again next week. Otherwise I'll make the executive decision to not record a locker room. Uh, if, if, if this is the same situation, if this sound quality is terrible and we can't get the desktop thing working. Uh, that's not going to be on us in my opinion. So then we will pivot back to our normal equipment until next time. Leave it to shout out to the one, the only build a championship team around him. He might be a bottom 15 player in the league and we need to give him a shout out for his self-esteem. Nikola Jokic and also Luka Doncic. Also maybe Giannis, LeBron, Kawhi, Joel Embiid, all these guys. They're just, can't build title teams around them. It's too damn hard, Adam. They need their shout-outs. So just hugs, hugs out to them, thoughts and prayers, condolences, everything. 